a day political story, of course, but it wears me out. And, and, and often is just, you know, it's just a story that day. Sure. I really like this big picture stuff on uh, looking at the, the trend lines in, in America and where we're going uh, and everything. So reading this Dan Ball's column is really interesting. And, you know, we get the midterms coming up here in a couple of weeks. Um, if you follow politics, you know the history of the whole thing. Reagan lost huge. Clinton lost huge. Obama lost huge in the midterms, Mm -hmm. and then went on to win a second term. So as far as that predicting anything, you know, that's not a good barometer. And you also have the last midterm, obviously four years ago, had the lowest turnout in this country since World War II, and that was a bit of an outlier because we were kind of preoccupied. I mean, so uh, who knows who's going to turn out and what they're going to be thinking. Well, let's talk big picture in midterms and whatever else comes up with Dan Balls, the chief correspondent covering national politics, the presidency, and Congress for the Washington Post, longtime journalist, uh, uh, certainly a heavyweight among journalists, and a fellow graduate of the University of Illinois. Dan, <laughs> we're looking for some good, solid Midwestern wisdom from you today. <laughs> well, good luck on that. <laughs> so, hey, listen, we uh, we might as well start with the piece you wrote uh, for the, the the Weekend Post, which is very long and thorough and thought-provoking about the identity of the the Democratic Party and where it might head. Uh, us uh, history freaks uh, might cast our minds back to, you know, the uh, late 60s, early 70s, when, when there wasn't a clear standard bearer for the Democrats and the energy was on the hardcore anti-war side and the Democrats uh, nominated Barry, I'm sorry, not Barry Goldwater. Um, what's his name from uh, North Dakota? George McGovern. George McGovern. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, it's it's very early here. Um, are we in a similar moment? How do you see it? I think it's totally unpredictable at this point. I think that the 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 base of the Democratic Party has moved to the left. I think the whole of the Democratic Party has moved to the left, and I think that the question is just how far left it has gone and how much of a consensus there is about what that means in terms of who they pick for a nominee. If you look at the list of people who are thinking about running for president and and we we don't have enough time to name everybody um they they range across the ideological spectrum i mean they're you know there are there are some you know very very progressive folks you know bernie sanders clearly being one and elizabeth warren from massachusetts being another but there are more moderate figures i mean joe biden is not you know not in the same camp as as bernie sanders and some of the other people who are thinking about it John Hickenlooper, who's the governor of Colorado, Steve Bullock, who's the governor of of Montana, um, are more moderate in their views about things. So, um, you know, you have young people, you have old people, you have women, you have people of color. uh, You've got almost everything at this point that represents the whole of the Democratic Party. And I think the big question is, is there somebody out there who can kind of take all of that and put it together in a compelling way and pull the party together? Yeah, well, I have lost track of that uh, that that race in Florida that I thought was going to be an indicator for the Democratic Party in some ways of how you run against a Trump-like candidate if a if a if a Elizabeth Warren Bernie type candidate can beat a Trump like candidate. 
Well, um, Andrew Gillum is who you're talking about, the Democratic nominee, um, and he's the mayor of Tallahassee. He's African-American. He was endorsed by Bernie Sanders. Um, He's got a very progressive agenda, um, and that race is a toss-up at this point. um, Mm. We don't don't know how that's going to go. Florida has been... You know, in many ways, the most competitive state over the longest period of time. Uh, Rick Scott, who's the governor and is now running for the Senate, um, basically has won his races by a tiny margin. Um, Donald Trump won it narrowly. Barack Obama won it narrowly. We go back to 2000 when George W. Bush in the disputed recount election won it by 537 votes. Right. So, um, which if is... Andrew Gillum can win that race, that tells you something about kind of what the appeal is of a message like that. Right, exactly. And I think the Democratic Party would rightfully use that as a heck of a focus group to uh, to, to, to decide you know who they want. Well, first of all, uh, the, the presidential... Let me, let me throw a different one at you, which is in our backyard here in Washington, in the state of Maryland. Maryland, which is which is a much bluer state than Florida. The Democrats have nominated um, Ben Jealous, who's former head of the NAACP, who's also quite progressive. Um, he's running against an incumbent Republican mayor. And we had a poll out uh, today, or I think we posted it yesterday. Uh, ben Jealous, the Democrat in a blue state, is down 20 points to Larry Hogan, the Republican governor, who's one of the most popular governors in the country. So it, it, it's so which which one do you take as the hmm. indicator of where the Democratic Party is or ought to be after this midterm? I'm going to take the one that's not uh, obliterated by the weather. <laughs> <laughs> so but is it does it make sense to be talking about this? I mean, as soon as the the midterms are over, we're going to be fully into presidential mode, aren't we? Oh, no, oh, ab- absolutely. I mean, Cory Booker, the senator from New Jersey, was in Iowa last weekend um you know there will be other people making a beeline for iowa and new hampshire soon after the midterm elections yeah we're going to turn very very quickly to the presidential election for you know for all the obvious reasons i mean it it, it is a it is a democratic party kind of in search of of its identity regardless as you said of how things turn out in the midterms um you know, Donald Trump, as we know, dominates the political conversation like no president we've had in modern times. Um, and the focus is going to be on where the country is going to be in 2020. Well, the Democratic Party also has a real challenge in that. And listen, I'm not going to hide my bias on this. I I think identity politics, generally speaking, are very dangerous. I think they're more divisive than unifying, and I think it's unhealthy. But if you are so tied up in identity politics as the Democratic Party is, who gets the nod and how they get the nod? Is it a woman? Is it a person of color? Is it a Hispanic? I mean, that's got to be managed really carefully. It does, and that's one of the reasons we have this, you know, ridiculously long nominating process. Um, I mean, it it will it will begin, as you say, right after the midterm election. And what what will happen is we're going to begin to hear from a lot of different people within the Democratic Party who aspire to be the standard bearer in 2020. And they are going to go places. They're going to talk to activists. They're going to talk to regular voters. Um, they're going to be giving speeches. They're going to be appearing on cable television. Um, they're going to be, in, in essence, testing and trying out messages that they hope will begin to resonate. Um, and I think it's I think it's wide open. I mean, if you were if you were kind of, you know, stratifying the Democratic field at this point, you would say there are three people who are kind of at the top of it. Uh, 
Vice President Biden is one. Bernie Sanders is another. Jeez, Elizabeth Warren is the third. All three of those in their seventies or eighties. Well, that's a very important point. I yeah. mean, there is a there's a generational bottleneck in the Democratic Party. Uh, and, it's like a three generational bottleneck. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, the piece I I wrote about the Democrats, I made reference both to the you know the presidential race and to the congressional leadership. And, and the fact of the matter is most of those people were long ago eligible for both Social Security and Medicare. Yeah. Uh, and if you think of it in that way, you think, well, my goodness, what 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 kind of what kind of forward looking futuristic leadership uh, is the Democratic Party going to be able to offer if you have people of that generation, frankly, of, of, of you know, of, a, of an older generation? Um, so that's going to be so there's a, there's an ideological discussion and debate that will go on there's a generational debate and discussion that will go on there is a there is a geographical debate that will go on there's a gender debate that will go on um, and there's a racial debate that will go on I mean you've got all of these elements stirring and when as I say when you look at the field of potential candidates there's there's something all of that that adds up to the Democratic Party and which of those people can actually make that case. Dan Balls is the chief correspondent covering national politics, the presidency and Congress for the Washington Post. Uh, you've been doing this a long time. Have we ever been in this state of flux? Because looking four years even past this election, now I'm talking about the 2024 um, I'll, I'll attack him physically if you'd because, like, Dan. Because no matter, yeah, please do. Because no matter what happens, we haven't settled anything as to where we are as a country. Um, because if you if you if you lose to Trump, the Democratic Party is still up in the air trying to figure out what they are. Trump's not really a Republican if he wins. So, but if Trump loses, okay, you beat Trump. That doesn't. <laughs> I mean, Trump is a, a unique thing. Sure. So that doesn't mean anything necessarily for the nation either. Well. You know, we're in a terribly unsettled period in our politics, Um, unsettled and very, you know, very divided. And, you know, no single election seems to be able to resolve any of this. I mean, it's just, you know, it's a prelude to the next election. Sure. And and the losing side looks to the next election to to regain the power that they lost in the in the, you know, the last election. Um, And in between the, you know, the idea of governing seems to get thrown by the wayside. Um, oh, amen. Good that. point. Good well point. said, sir. Yeah. You know, we're in a we're in a kind of an all or all or nothing era. Um, and if you are the party in power, even if even if you don't particularly have a, a big mandate, you try to put through the policies that your party believes in. Um, and if you are the out party, you do everything you can to block that because you know those policies today are anathema to your own uh, political party. And so we, we swing back and forth, and that's why these elections are so contentious um, and why they don't particularly settle anything. I mean, both parties are at a point where they are quite divided. Um, you know, there, there are some unifying elements and some unifying themes, right. but they are both divided parties. We have spent a lot of time over the last couple of years since Trump came on the scene talking about kind of what he's done to the Republican Party and how he's changed it and how it's not the party that it used to be and how there are a lot of Republicans who don't feel that they have a home. They don't see a home in the Democratic Party. Well, to that point, the, the if... Democratic Party is, is, is 
you know, is is divided in all the ways we were been we've been talking about. Right. Uh, to that point, if I might jump in, uh, I saw one of the big uh, websites headline this morning, and I don't remember which one. There are too many websites, um, <laughs> but it it posited that the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing fiasco killed the Never Trump movement. All those Never Trump Republicans are now more or less on board. Would you agree? Or to what well, extent think, would you I, agree? I, I would agree to this extent. I think they are on board, as they have been, on the issue of uh, judicial nominations. I mean, one of the reasons that people who I would say are kind of traditional Republicans and who were not at all enamored with Donald Trump in 2016, nonetheless were willing to vote for him, uh, one big reason was judicial nominations. And they have been, you know, they have been rewarded um, between President Trump moving quickly on judicial nominations and having, you know, having two Supreme Court nominations in the first two years of his presidency, plus all kinds of of, uh, appellate court nominations and district court nominations. They are changing the face of uh, the the judicial system in this country uh, and for conservatives who otherwise don't particularly like Donald Trump that's a big deal uh, it doesn't make them Trump Republicans um, but at but on that kind of an issue um, there is you know there is a y- unity within the Republican coalition uh, we were playing a little bit earlier Hillary Clinton's quote that's making the rounds in which she said you, you can't be civil when you're dealing with a, an opposition like we're dealing with. That, seemed that would like destroy it, all that is good and right. That seemed like a heck of a thing for uh, somebody in as high a position as her to say. How did you take that? Well, I think she's still, you know, she's still digesting having lost to Donald Trump. Um, and she <laughs> that would take a long will, time to digest. <laughs> she probably will be for a long, long time. I mean, there's a, there's a famous... Uh, anecdote, perhaps apocryphal, perhaps not, of when Walter Mondale lost in the landslide to, to Ronald Reagan in 1984, he called George McGovern, uh, who had lost to Nixon in 72, and said, George, how long does it take to get over this? And, and McGovern supposedly responded, I'll call you when I know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've read a whole so, bunch of uh, you know biographies from people who've run and lost for president, and they, it, they take it to their grave. I mean, it just yeah, hurts you the rest of your yeah. life. And this one in particular, I mean, this was a very, very painful loss because she she believed she was going to be president of the United States and to lose um, in that way. And 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 from her from her vantage point to lose unfairly, she believes that the Comey letter um, was the you know, was the final blow that stopped her from from winning. Yeah, go to Wisconsin. (laughs) Right. But at any rate. Um, so, I mean, she's had a number of things to say since she lost the race that have not been particularly, they've been, they've been impolitic. Uh, and this is another example of that. She, you know, but she, she has very strong feelings and she's, I guess she's at a point in her life where she's going to speak out, uh, and say what she thinks and she, and she believes. Well, uh, Um, let's put Hillary aside then. Stir things up. Well, let's put Hillary aside then and just talk uh, generally about civility and, screeching angrily at people and hounding them out of restaurants and pounding on the doors of the Supreme Court and both sides whipping their people up as much as possible. Does it trouble you, given your long experience observing this sort of thing? I think it does. I mean, sure it does. I think it, I mean, I think it troubles a lot of people. I mean, the, I mean, the, the people talk about, uh, they think our system is broken. They look at Washington and they, you know, they dislike the gridlock, um, Across the political spectrum, people think money is a corrupting influence. I mean, there are all these. There's all these indicators that people dislike the politics of our time, and yet so many people, in fact, engage in it. 
Um, now, I'm not saying everybody, you know, disrupts somebody at their, you know, while they're having dinner at their restaurant. And I think most people think that that's a terrible tactic and that it should be deplored. I hope you're right. Um, but um, but um, but people people feel as though uh, the stakes are so high and passions are so intense right now uh, that people are saying things and doing things that um, that you know that are that are kind of beyond the pale in terms of getting back to anything approaching civility or civil discourse or you know or or reasonableness in the way we deal with these issues i was going to bring up 2028 but i'm afraid we're out of time oh oh boy now we are fighting i've got some i've got some views on that (laughs) well perhaps we can do that next time we talk dan balls of the washington post truly one of the deans of american political journalism dan you've been more than generous with your time it's great to talk to you thanks my pleasure thanks guys thank you well i got a hearty laugh out of him there at the end He couldn't stop laughing. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could Simple. talk to him for a long time. Oh, yeah. He's he's a fair guy and an experienced one and a wise one. Because I wanted to get into Bloomberg and third parties. and You're right to party. Hmm. Tell you what. We stop being civil, we will lose our civilization. Look at Portland. Look at the streets of Portland. Is that civilization when armed gangs masked are roaming the streets and terrorizing citizens it's not very civilized and it can go fast oh my god yeah Yeah, that's the one thing civilized people don't understand is how fragile civilization is right ask anybody in any war zone text line 415-295-KFTC you're listening to the Armstrong and Getty show Armstrong and Getty the conscience of the the nation The Armstrong and Getty Show. Obviously, I ask a bad question. All right, I, I, the question is good. It was poorly asked to Dan Balls because I, I put him in the position. Of uh, feeling like he was talking to a simpleton, which he was, but he had to give me like the one-on-one of politics. Well, you see, one side wins, and then the other <laughs> side, then they tend to get what they what? want, and then the other side has to respond to that. Well, that my point was that um, anybody who thinks we're going to like figure out where we are, it's not going to happen with this presidential election, especially if the Democrats run somebody that's fringe to their party, mm-hmm. while the Republicans have somebody who's not really a Republican, right. then what that, that doesn't tell us anything. Whoever wins. It tells us that we're in a period of great flux, and that Americans are looking for something different than what they've been getting. We need more parties. I think if a Joe Biden ended up... We need, need up, more parties. If a Joe like Biden... Thursday nights. Let's start then. <laughs> I think Joe Biden's too old. But if a Joe Biden yeah, type... Stop bringing up Joe Biden. If a Joe Biden type person won, I think that would tell us something. Yes. Okay, we're kind of yes. we're, we're, we're kind of center of the road. That's what the majority of people want. Yeah. That sort of thing. But I don't think that's what's going to happen. Well, you just gave John Kasich full sexual arousal. <laughs> but, John, it ain't going to be you, dude. It's just not going to be you. You. Oh, boy, that's a troubling image. Some, somebody else, maybe, but not you. Uh, will Donald J. run for uh, re-election? We'll, re- we'll discuss that yeah, some other yeah, time. Yeah. Jeez, oh, man. You know, you know what's funny is, uh, I've made it clear through the years, I despise the fixation on the presidency. Sure. That's not the way this country's supposed to work. Nope. On the other hand, the, the president does become the voice of and standard bearer of the major party. 
What's coming up in your news, Marshall? The Jedi versus the Dragonfly. What is Google up to, and is it a threat to national security? I have no idea what we're about to hear on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Before we get into the news, late-breaking South Korean t-shirt trend news with Positive Sean. Yeah, so apparently the the latest major trend in youth t-shirt wear in South Korea is Jesse Jackson for President 1988 t-shirts. These are being featured in many different retail stores and apparently are just being seen out and about (laughs) in in the wild. In South Korea. Yeah. Die right. Does anybody know why? No. No, that we are still at the discovery phase of this phenomenon, Jack. Yes. We're uh, now investigating and figuring out where this actually started. And moving on from South Korean t-shirt news to amphibian <laughs> weather news, it's raining frogs, toads specifically, in North Carolina. Do they have both sets of genitals? <laughs> because of the, uh, the hurricanes right. and whatnot, there it- are gazillions of toads raining down on people in North it's Carolina. It's raining toads. Hallelujah. Yeah. I think there's something in the Bible about that. Oh, boy. Huh? I don't oh panic until I see locusts. The Bible! It's probably the sodomy. It's got to be. Uh, let's get the news now, Marshall Phillips. Well, Google says it's not going to be going after a $10 billion Pentagon contract after all. The company had been considering bidding for a Defense Department effort to move huge amounts of data to the cloud. It's a program called the Joint Enterprise Defense Infrastructure, or JEDI. Part of Defense Secretary James Mattis' drive to maintain the U.S. military's competitive edge with artificial intelligence and machine learning capabilities changing the nature of battle. And while Google admits the contract's very lucrative, one the company says, though, might not align with the company's principles when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence. Now, the Tech Workers Coalition, a group of industry employees in the San Francisco Bay Area in Seattle, says the decision was based primarily on sustained employee pressure who commanded a say in what they built. Let me jump in here, Marshall. Let's uh, let's map this out for you. Google has said, we're not going to do business with the United States government, specifically our military. Correct. Google, who is even now way down the road of a secretive project with the communist Chinese... To develop a censored search engine for China, which would blacklist phrases like human rights, student protest, and Nobel Prize. Now, Google's been lying about that project, but a leaked document or two have shown what the truth really is. So again, Google, yes to communist China, no to the United States of America. How unbelievable is that? And that Chinese project has been dubbed the Dragonfly app. And again, the intercepts... uh Reporting that the company's search engine chief had a secret meeting to congratulate a room full of employees working on the platform, saying it could be ready within the next six to nine months. If we're going to continue kicking Google later, I've got the many annoying ways Google forced users into Google Plus over the years. And then expose their data. Then expose to their developers, data. developers, right. et cetera. Yeah, okay. On another front, President Trump in campaign mode for next month's midterms. He was at a rally in Iowa attacking a number of possible rivals during a speech. That would be Senators Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. We won't talk about Danang Dick. Whoa! Whoa! Oh. Tried to convince people for 15 years that he was a great war hero. 
They were going down left. They were going down right. You know. Right, you know who that is, Blumenthal. He said they were going down on my left, they were going down. He was in Da Nang province, except the one problem. It's hard to be there because he was never in Vietnam, but these are minor details. And then he gets up, he goes, I demand total honesty and transparency. I'm saying, <laughs> so what's this? He wants honesty. Is there a two drink minimum for this act? Great war hero. He's a great hero. <laughs> Any anniversaries yeah. in the crowd? Any birthdays? <laughs> I tell you what, that was good stuff, and the crowd was absolutely sure. lapping it up. I- I've got a bit of an oogie feeling because, in the same way, only Nixon could go to China. Only Trump can't go to draft dodging. That's a little uncomfortable for me. Well, the whole claiming you're a, a war hero, though, when you weren't there. Of course, there, you know, no. the Donald never did that. No, that makes you a crazy person. Yeah. Lots of people tried to avoid going to Vietnam, sure. especially late in the game. Yes. Um, claiming you're a war hero, I can't believe anybody gets elected and stays a U.S. senator when you did that. That's, That's right. amazing. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know, I've, how many times during the hearing did I call him an evil and malignant human? He is. He is. I hate to sound like Cory Booker here. On the other hand, you shouldn't scream at him in a restaurant or, or hound oh, him no. out of the public library. Would never do or that. Or cost him on Capitol Hill because that's uncivilized. Be better than that. On yet another matter, a new survey has found people are throwing out their clothes faster than they used to because the wearers have been seen with the items on too many times on their social media accounts. <laughs> Respondents saying they discard clothing after wearing it just three times in any photos on Facebook or Instagram. Kate, you're looking great, but the blue dress again? Yes. Oh, my. Add this to the, add this to the list of things I'm happy I don't have to worry about on a daily basis. Oh, my God. Hey, Michael, how many times has he worn that T-shirt? I'd say about 32 <laughs> At least. And it costs $7 from Target. You're so pretentious. Reports indicate that people are buying twice as much clothing as they did a decade ago, in part because of this, and in part because there's a lot of cheap clothing, and the fads yeah. change very quickly. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips, the Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. That's one thing about your, uh, your cheaper clothes, like the fifth branch of the military, Old Navy. Some of your least less less expensive clothes they they don't they don't hold up that well. No, they're really cheap. But man, no. you wash them a couple of times and yeah, yeah you're done. Good selfie stuff. So uh, during the cooler months, I wear nothing but jeans and flannel shirts. How many do you suppose is is enough to rotate for a dude? Three. <laughs> I think that's plenty. I think I'm safe then. You got your plaid black, your plaid red, and your plaid. Blue. Blue, gray. Sure. Well, I have more than three, so I'm good. I'm safe. I guess i got to stop buying them. This is pretty. This is an interesting sidelight to the hashtag MeToo movement. Uh, you got a couple of students hooked up at a university. Deemed consensual, but he had to spend $12,000 defending himself. Wow. This ain't good. This can't be good. Stay tuned for details coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience. Of the nation. Have you? The Armstrong and Getty Show. Ain't nobody, ain't nobody. Gonna steal my hey, just real quick before we get into this, Michael, I'm saying every time we mention Google. We should hear the gong and the president saying China to remind people of Project Dragonfly. 
the joint venture between Google and the Communist Chinese. They continue. China. Perfect. Google it. I had such a dramatic way to start this, but I'm having trouble getting into it. Oh, now you can. Three, (laughs) two, one. They continued kissing and even touching as they grinded against each other. I had my hands on her back, and I was like, wow, this is really starting to get frisky, says James. My hands started to make my way up her back, slowly, respectfully testing the waters. This, you might guess, is not for the children to listen to. James opened his eyes to make sure Becky was enjoying what was happening. She seemed into it, and so he touched her boobs and her butt over her clothes. James removed his shirt, and according to Becky's account, she told him to drop it to the floor. She was wearing a crop top, and according to her statement to the investigator, she told James that he could unbutton it since it seemed like that's what he wanted. Becky admitted that her hands were on his back and that she touched his butt as well. This is a long, very long, detailed account of something I think many of us have been through in our lives. Well, I'm enjoying it. Go on. (laughs) That turned into an investigation on a college campus. Oh, boy. They don't have sex at the end of this, by the way. That's about as far as it goes. At some point, they hear the roommate coming down the hall. He puts his shirt back on. Uh, leaves the room, he kind of assumes, she kind of assumes they'll get back together at some point. Sure. Um, her roommate sees some hickeys on hickeys on her at some point. She starts to feel embarrassed about it. For some reason, um, she decides to, 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 to go to the university and say something happened that she didn't want to have happen to her. And because of Title IX and the way it's written... Uh, currently, and because of the hashtag MeToo era, the university took this clear to the mat, um, a full-on investigation. He gets a letter all of a sudden saying you're being investigated for uh, inappropriate sexual conduct. And assumed guilty. And assumed guilty. He has to make statements to a whole bunch of different people, fully recounting the entire day and evening. These are a couple of people that were in a class together. They became friends. They went out with a bunch of people, had a few drinks, went the direction it went. Ultimately, and this is important to the story, she says, yeah, I was into it, too, and, uh, you know, I initiated as much as he did, and the university decided, okay, no harm, no foul, everything is fine here. He spent $12,000 defending himself, though, because he had to get a lawyer, the way it currently uh, currently works on university campuses. Oh, golly. Isn't that something? Wow. Yeah. He had to tell in really, really graphic details... Everything about this encounter to, uh, you know, a board, and then, of course, his parents. A board, by the way, that is terrified of losing their Title IX funding. Right. If they so much as hint that, well, wait a minute, this guy might not be guilty of anything. They have every incentive to rule against the accused in these things, including several instances where the accuser said, no, nothing happened, it's fine. But a roommate saw something or a classmate saw something, they go crazy. Boy, this is interesting. And as usual, in the old really troubling double reverse uh, situation, it makes you have more doubt about righteous accusations of terrible things. This is very European. This is the way they do it in Europe. God, I don't know how you... I'd always heard my life, boy, over in Europe, everybody gets to have sex and it's crazy and wild. Boy, it doesn't sound like it to me if this is the way... I wouldn't if this is the way it works. So um, Becky started to feel self-conscious about the hickeys after a roommate pointed them out. According to the report, she said, I thought I enjoyed it, but I don't think I really did. 
So you can make out with somebody and at some point later in the night think, I wish I hadn't done that, and now that guy's guilty of a crime. That's an interesting, interesting way to run a society. James was unaware that Becky had begun to recontextualize what had just happened. At around 1 a.m., Becky texted James that she would like to clarify things between them. James was still in the neighborhood. He had been uh, went over to a friend's house, uh, and he returned to meet Becky. She wants to recontextualize. She quickly asked him what he thought had happened back there. James said he thought he had made out with the cool girl from my drama class. Becky said she was getting a friends with benefits vibe from James, and he readily agreed. They then proceeded to discuss the terms of such a relationship. They agreed to keep it secret from their other drama class friends and not to have um, certain sexual acts. It was Becky's preference that they stick to hand stuff. And they discussed getting James' roommates to leave us so that they could have some private time. I thought she still wanted to see me, said James. Yeah, I would I would take that. Oh, uh, uh, yeah. I would take that. Uh, yeah, that's hint. kind of the vibe I was getting. The hint I would get, too. Let's go ahead and use our hands on each other. But one thing caught James off guard. Becky told him that he should have asked explicitly and verbally before touching her breasts or butt. Oh, boy. James Apollo, I would immediately at that oh, time, point think, holy crap, I'm screwed. I've accidentally gotten on the train to crazy town. That James- whole bizarro, can I touch your arm now? I'm touching your lower arm. May I touch your upper arm? James apologized and promised to do so next time. They parted ways on what James thought was good terms and asked if he could give her a small kiss goodbye. She said yes, and he did so. The next day, Saturday, Becky canceled their plans to meet, claiming she was sick. On Monday, she sent him a we-need-to-talk text. At that point, James had a feeling she was going to break it off. Break it off. There's not a lot of it here, if you've ever been in these situations. I went over to her dorms. I see she's dressed in all black, black sunglasses, black shoes. She says, let's go for a walk. James was right to be worried. In the two days since their last meeting, Becky's feelings about the encounter had shifted, according to her report. She told investigators that her mother noticed the hickeys while they were video chatting. The hickeys made her feel disgusted because it was as if James had been marking me as his own, she said. Becky's mother agreed with her that she should break things off with James. You were definitely violated, said Becky's mother, according to the report. You know, I've long found the whole hickey thing kind of dumb. Yeah. That's just me. What's the point? I've what never, are you doing? I've never given and or received a hickey. Yeah, I mean, not, no, but, no, you know. No. You know, as long as we're off on tangents, uh, for you younger fellas listening, this is your old Uncle Joe. I've been around the block a couple of times. I've been around a couple of different blocks a couple of times. Meeting chicks in drama class or... A play or a careful caution, caution, whoop, 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 danger ahead, danger, danger, danger. Now, I happen to be happily married to somebody I met in that sort of circumstance, but there was plenty of wreckage before that. Be careful, <laughs> gentlemen. I urge you, be careful. A couple of dumpster fires. You want drama? Meet somebody in drama class. So, meet up with the chick from economics? Is that what you're yes. saying? Yes. Or, dude? Yes, a nice engineering gal. Um, during their Monday meeting, I touch your pylons (laughs) during their Monday meeting. Becky told James that her last boyfriend had been emotionally abusive and she just wasn't ready for another relationship. Even a friends with benefits one. James told her he understood and asked whether they could still be friends. Then Becky said something that worried him. She again accused him of touching her without consent. Further, Becky revealed that she had already spoken with their drama teacher and asked not to be paired with James in activities. Oh, dude, your, your goose is cooked. You're dealing with a crazy person. At this point, I feel I'm being accused, he says. I think she told the drama teacher she'd been sexually abused by me. And Indeed, according to the report, Becky had emailed their drama teacher to say that James had made her feel uncomfortable in a sexual context. 
Ermagerd. Boy, that is a, a bland accusation. You know what? Uh, another slight tangent. How are we going to handle this society? What, what, what bothers me about this, and there's a lot that bothers me about this, is it infantilizes women. It, it makes y'all into pathetic little daisies. Um, who, I mean, you've got to establish boundaries, and they're your boundaries. And the boundaries you establish are the ones that the guy has to adhere to. And you enforce that, um, you know, uh, well, you don't compromise. But having not set boundaries, you have to take responsibility for that, too. And I'm not talking about sexual violence, of course. Um, I'm talking about if you're mashing and he grabs your butt and... And according to this account, he then opened his eyes to see if she's cool with that, and which you're is the grabbing way it works. his butt. Right. That's you, the way you do it among normal people. Right. You're you're a grown-up. You have to take responsibility for that too. And he clearly seems like the kind of guy if she said, "I'm not ready for this" or "Don't do that." In fact, at one point she says, "Can we go a little slower?" and he says, "Okay, sure." And it's just I don't know. Wow, this is this is strange. You know, and and at some point they say the system worked and that you know, they decided that he's not guilty, but they had spent he had spent twenty. His parents spent twelve thousand dollars in legal bills to keep him from getting expelled from the University of uh, California at Davis over this incident. Katy Perry kissed a girl and she liked it. This guy kissed a girl and he ended up spending twelve k to save himself from being branded a rapist. God dang it! That's that's. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to deal with this society. This what I hope is brief. A brief period of insanity cannot last. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. It's untenable. Yeah. It is unworkable. That's true. It's unreasonable. It's illogical. <laughs> Keep going with those. Oh, I could go on all day. <laughs> it's an anomaly. It's an unpalatable, <laughs> unbelievable, unstoppable, inescapable. Taylor Swift speaks out at the Music oh, Awards good. last night. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show.